Hey guys, thank you again so much for watching the last episode. So today, we're going to be digging a little bit into a story about the movie The Exorcist. So, the movie itself is actually based off of a true story of a man named Roland Doe. I'm sorry, of a child named Roland Doe. Um, anyway, so if these episodes make you feel uncomfortable, especially talking about things about exorcisms and religious views on things, I just want to put in a little warning here um, that it might trigger some people, but you never know, so I just wanted to let you know. <laughs> um, so let's go ahead and get on to our sponsored segment, and then we will jump right into the opening and the story. said going to talk about the exorcist of well the exorcist the movie but it is the exorcism exorcism I think I said that wrong of Roland Doe <laughs> so um here we go so the actual true story did not happen in Maryland at all it actually happened in a St. Louis St. Louis sorry <laughs> St. Louis house um, so that's kind of a little bit of different but anyway um, it took place in a neighborhood called Belnor of St. Louis and if you actually look at the house itself it's actually a colonial style house um, right off of Roanoke Drive so you might be able to find it <laughs> uh, it definitely looks normal on the outside it has an all brick exterior, white shutters, you know, nice. So, there, but if you ever see that house, that is definitely where one of the most extraordinary horror stories turned urban legend actually happened there. So, and that is, like I said, the true story of Roland Doe, which was later turned into the movie The Exorcist. So let's kind of get a little bit of a background here. Um, this true story of the exorcist actually begins in the late 1940s in a suburban Washington, D.C. with a family named Hunkler. So there's that family. Um, there's a 13-year-old boy who is believed to be named Ronald, um, but literature and stuff like that has made him Ronald Doe. Eh. He might be named Ronald. People call him Roland Doe. That's what he's most known by. So, um, yeah. <laughs> they, he was very despondent. So very sad over the loss of his aunt Harriet. And she was a spiritualist who actually taught him many things, including how to use a Ouija board. Yay. 
that's never good. Ouija boards are just never good, man. Just don't mess with them. Please don't mess with them. <laughs> um, so in 1949, shortly after her death, Ronald began to experience like really weird things like scratching sounds on in his room, water dripping from pipes that was in the walls that they had no trouble with at all. Um, mattresses that he would lay on would just move and just become very unsettling for him. Um, he was very disturbed and so he decided that he was going to his him and his family were going to find help uh, with an expert that they know and they actually got information and consulted the doctors, psychiatrists, all that fun stuff. And they actually also contacted their local Lutheran minister. But they did not get any help whatsoever. And the minister actually recommended that they go see and get assistance from the Jesuit. So that kind of took a little bit of a different route for them. Uh, something they wasn't used to actually experiencing. And of course, I mean, having to go to someone you don't know, it made things very uncomfortable and awkward for them. They eventually ended up finding help from a man named Father E. Albert Hughes, and he was actually a local priest, and he ended up having to ask his superiors if they would give him permission to actually perform the exorcism on the boy in the late February of 1949. Again, not many bad things were happening at that time. It was just like the noises, the mattress moving, just weird stuff like that. Um, however, <laughs> in the spring, Hughes stopped the right when he actually broke a piece of the spring from his mattress that he'd been strapped down to and literally cut the priest from his each of his shoulders, like all the way across. So... He decided to stop that. <laughs> um, at that point, they thought that he was just deranged and he needed to go to a mental ward, psychological help, you know. Um, but after that, the family were was not convinced that it was a mental trouble. So a few days later, so they kind of waited that out. They thought that maybe, maybe things would calm down. So, a few days later, after the priest actually broke off the right, red scratches started to appear on the boy, and one of the scratches actually formed the word Lewis, which indicated to the mother that the family needed to actually go to St. Louis, where the Hunklers had relatives in order to find a way to save their son. So, they took a little bit of a trav. <laughs> um... At that time, a cousin of the family was actually attending St. Louis University, and she put the Hunklers, which is a family, in touch with a man named Father H. I'm sorry, Father Walter H. Haloran, and Reverend William Bowdern. So they were able to get them over there and actually do a consult with the family. And they actually agreed to perform an exorcist on the young boy with the help of several assistants. So they saw that the trouble he was in 
and finally they got the permission to actually do the exorcism so the men actually again this is where they moved on to Roanoke Drive so they did gather there at the residence in the early March of 1949 and the exorcist there witnessed that the scratching on the boy's body and the mattress was moving again very violently and these were the same types of things that happened in Maryland where they just came from when the first exorcism completely failed because like I said they stopped because the priest got slashed from shoulder to shoulder <laughs> yeah so uh, amid the happenings um, Bowdern and Haloran actually according to their reports noticed a pattern in the behavior so he was calm and normal during the day but at night after settling into the bed that's when he would start to exhibit strange behavior like screaming outbursts um yeah just things that identify that actually happened in the exorcist so they kind of kept that true (laughs) he would also at that time he would also enter a trance like state and start making sounds like in a very guttural just deep demonic voice which is what you normally would hear on the movies and things like that so and the priest also saw flying objects in the boy's presence and noted that he would violently react when he saw any sacred objects so things like crosses uh, rosaries anything like that he would completely just wig out about it which I mean that that's again is a very high sign of demonic possession so at one point this was definitely like a weeks weeks month long ordeal so um, at one point they actually saw an X appear on the chest and the priest did believe that this actually signified the number 10 there was another incident also that a pitchfork-shaped pattern of red lines actually moved from the boy's thigh and actually snaked down towards his ankle. Um, And these things happened every night for more than a month. So, yeah, um, they did believe at that time that the child was actually possessed by ten different demons. So... The two priests actually never gave up, and they continued the exorcism night after night after night, continuing to try to save the poor boy. Um, This is where things gets a little bit scary. So, on March 20th, um, same year, the exorcism actually reached a unhealthy new level. We'll just put it that way. And... The boy actually urinated all over his bed and began shouting and cursing at the priests. Now, at this point, the parents had enough, and they did actually take the boy to the Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis for a more serious treatment. Yeah! (laughs) Um, On April 18th, a quote-unquote miracle 
occurred in the room at the Alexian at the Alexian brothers. Um, it was the Monday after Easter, and the boy actually woke up with severe seizures. And at that point, he yelled at the priests, saying that Satan would always be with him. And the priests laid holy relics, crucifixes, medals, all these, and the rosaries all over the boy. And 10.45 p.m. Um, that evening, the priests called St. Michael to expel Satan from the body. Yay! Um, they shouted at Satan, <laughs> saying that St. Michael would battle him for, the wrong, for his soul. And seven minutes later, the boy actually came out of the trance and simply said, He's gone. The boy recounted how he had a vision of St. Michael actually vanquishing um, Satan on this battlefield. And there's no more really documented instances of the strange occurrences and behavior after that. And from what they understand, the boy actually went on to live a completely normal life from that moment forward. Despite being part of a movie. <laughs> um, yeah. So, that's the part of the story that nobody really talks about. And they show that the exorcism was definitely dramatized, of course. But it definitely shows that in this case, the religious background did actually help the child in the long run. So, yeah. <laughs> um, that case actually would not really make headlines, headlines again for another two decades. Um, when in 1971, the author by the name of William Peter Blatty penned the best-selling novel, The Exorcist, based on the unofficial diary kept by Haloran and Bowdern. And that movie actually stayed on the bestseller list for 54 weeks. And it spawned the hit movie in 1973. So, yeah. And they definitely took liberties with it. So, turning the teenage, the teenager into a 12-year-old girl instead of the boy. Um, they, <laughs> the movie also takes place completely in Washington, D.C., in the Georgetown area. Um, which is, like, close to Maryland, so. And, I mean, it's kind of true because he was hospitalized for a week in Georgetown. But, yeah. <laughs> um, they definitely took their liberties with that. So, but following the exorcism, um, his family actually moved back to the East Coast. And sources say that he actually found a wife and started a family, and he named his first son Michael after the saint that he believed that believed to save his soul. And if he is still alive today, he would be. Let me see. He would be in his eighties, so 
early 80s, so if he was still alive. Um, Bowdern, on the other hand, actually died in 1983 after serving the Catholic Church for decades. And Haloran lived until 2005 when he actually died of cancer. And he was the last surviving member of the main team that had actually performed the exorcism. Yeah. Um, the room in the Alexian Brothers Hospital was actually boarded up and sealed following the exorcism. And the entire facility was torn down in 1978. And the house where the family lived in Maryland is now completely empty and was abandoned since the 1960s. Yeah, so... <laughs> it's, I mean, it's still standing, the house is. So, I mean, you can definitely go see it still, but, you know... Yeah. Um, the house on Roanoke Drive, where they actually did the most portion of the um, exorcism in St. Louis it was sold to new owners in 2005 for $165,000 and they I don't know yeah I don't know I personally wouldn't want to live in that house but you know people do weird things (laughs) But yeah, so that's kind of the true story about Roland Doe and how they got the idea for the movie, The Exorcist. Yep. So, um, if you guys have any more information or you would like to follow along this channel, um, please just follow me on Twitter. Again, the at is at ghoulstells. Um, I'll be posting photos and updates and polls and all kinds of stuff about the account and about the lovely stuff that we go over. And I do hope eventually that I'll be able to get a special guest on here. Uh, we do have plans of getting together soon. I'm not going to tell everybody who it is just yet, but <laughs> we do have plans on getting together. So yeah, I hope you guys have a wonderful day. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Alright, bye guys.